Well, greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mullet. You can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube. You can search for and subscribe to the channel there. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Logical Belief from your favorite podcast catcher. Uh, If you want to see previous episodes, uh, you can find both the audio and video on the website. Uh, Just click on podcast on the top menu bar. And uh, you can find the previous episodes there. Uh, If you have a word of encouragement or a question uh, for me, you can email those to jason at logicalbelief.org. Alrighty, well, it's been uh, two weeks uh, since we've had an episode. Uh, Last week I had a business trip and was not able to get an episode out. And so I wanted to... uh, to do something on young earth creationism. It's not really a topic that I've hit on that much. I did do a past episode entitled uh, The Philosophical Naturalism Hermeneutic. Um, I'm not actually sure what episode that was. It was one of the more it was one of the uh, earlier episodes, and I have an article on the website uh, on that topic. <clears throat> and so I will link that article in this ep- uh, in this uh, episode on the website if you're interested in that. Uh, that that particular article is in reference to um, how many uh, Christians today will read into the text of uh, Genesis, especially the first few chapters, um, a naturalistic worldview read it back into the text, and then uh, apply it as a hermeneutical method. And I think that is problematic. So I have an article on that, um, and so that kind of does touch on what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, but before we jump into the topic, uh, let's hear a few words from Striving for Eternity Ministries. Mark your calendar. Jersey Fire is July 8th and 9th in Toms River, New Jersey. The topic, the Word of God. The speakers, Matt Slick from Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, Justin Peters from Justin Peters Ministry, and Andrew Rappaport from Striving for Eternity. Jersey Fire will equip you to talk to the lost and then put what you learn into practice with guidance and support from seasoned evangelists. Jersey Fire, July 8th and 9th in Toms River, New Jersey. For details, go to jerseyfire.org. Alrighty. Uh, before though we jump into our topic of young earth creationism, is uh, I had a question from a listener, which uh, I thought was a really good question, and I told them that I would address it on the podcast uh, to answer them. Um, so <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and just uh, read uh, the the question portion of their message here, and then we'll go into it. Uh, The question is, if once saved, always saved, then could you explain the blotting out of the names from God's book of life? We're stuck because if the name was never in the book, then there'd be no name to blot out. Uh, Wouldn't that support the Arminian thought of losing one's salvation once granted? So it's a very good question, and it is is something that... uh, uh, some Arminians do bring up sometimes as an objection. I think it's a very weak one, uh, but we can uh, we can look into that. I I do want to address um, the one comment here about once saved, always saved. Uh, the modern evangelical doctrine of once saved, always saved. Um, I don't uh, necessarily hold 
to that. Uh, now, if you're asking me, do I believe that once somebody is genuinely saved by God, by a working of the Holy Spirit of God, that they actually are saved and they will always be saved? Yes, that's the uh, I, I do believe that. But uh, the way the doctrine of once saved, always saved has been propounded and perpetuated within the American evangelical community, um, I do not hold to that. And that is that you got your ticket punched at some point, you said a prayer, you said those magic, uh, that magic uh, incantation known as the salvation prayer, and uh, you're, you're in like Flynn. You might be an atheist now, you might be a complete rebel against God now, but uh, you got your ticket punched, so you're on the glory train. So I, I don't hold to that at all. Uh, that is not the biblical doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Uh, so often when people ask me, do I believe in eternal security or do I believe in once saved, always saved? I say, well, I believe in the perseverance, God's persevering of the saints. Uh, I believe that God perseveres all of his saints, all of his elect. He perseveres to the end uh, once he has justified them within time by faith. And so um, I believe that all of God's uh, chosen people, those who have been written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, um, when they are saved, he perseveres them to the end. They will grow in the knowledge of him. They will uh, produce fruit um, and they will persevere until the end. Uh, he that perseveres till the end will be saved. And um, so uh, I would uh, reject the doctrine of once saved, always saved, as uh, modern evangelicalism uh, holds to. And, and and I think a lot of it comes from the fact that many modern evangelicals are Arminian in their theology, but yet they try to hold to the fifth point of Calvinism, and I don't think they can consistently do so from their Arminian perspective. So because of that, uh, the doctrine becomes distorted, and it is not held true to its biblical foundation. And so... Uh, but we want to get into the question. Uh, the question, I think, is a really good one. And so uh, the question is, if you can be blotted out of the book of life, um, then that must mean your name was written in it at some point. And uh, that would be a good objection if, if uh, Scripture would really actually teach that. So uh, let's uh, look at uh, just the term book of life. Let's see how many times it occurs in the Bible and uh, and where it occurs. And let's go to those particular texts and let's take a look at them. Uh, in the ESV uh, translation, uh, the term Book of Life is uh, in there seven times. In the NASB, New American Standard, it's in there eight times, and the only additional one to the ESV is in Psalm 69, verse 28, and we'll look at that particular psalm. Um, that particular psalm could be referencing the book, Lamb's Book of Life, or it may not, but I, I think it probably is. But the NASB actually translates uh, Psalm 69, 28 as Book of Life instead of uh, the Book of the Living, which is how the ESV translates it. And then we have the King James, which has the term Book of Life in it eight times, one once more than the ESV. And that is because it contains it in uh, the last chapter of the book of Revelation in verse 19. It contains uh, 
the term book of life where almost all of their translations translate it as uh, tree of life and uh, we'll get into the reasons for that so uh, towards towards the end of this so the first thing we have to look at is the names who are written in the book of life we will see were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world we see in revelation 13 verse 8 and revelation 17 verse 8 it's speaking about those who marvel at the beast those who follow after the beast it says it says and all who dwell on the earth will worship it speaking of the beast here and uh, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain so we see here that the ones who worship the beast were those who had not been written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. In Revelation 17, 8, it says, The beast that you saw was and is and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So we see here that the names which are in the book of life are written there before the foundation of the world. Now, the only reference directly in the Bible to names being blotted out is in Revelation 3, 5. But in that case, it's saying that they will not be blotted out. It's not saying that they will be blotted out. It's actually saying that they will not be blotted out, blotted out. And this is speaking about those, this is uh, in Revelation chapter 3, where the Apostle John is writing to the church of Sardis, and he says, the one who conquers, in verse 5 of Revelation chapter 3, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So we see here, that he will not blot out the name that was written there before the foundation of the world uh, for the one who conquers. His name will not be blotted out. We see here that to enter into heaven, uh, your name uh, has to be written in the Lamb's book of life. In Revelation 21, verse 27, it says, but nothing unclean will enter ever enter it speaking to the heavenly state the eternal state nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life so we see that to to enter into the heavenly state the eternal state one must have their name written in the lamb's book of life and we saw earlier that those names were written there before the foundation of the world. <clears throat> In Revelation 20, verse 12 and verse 15, it speaks of those who are not written in the book of life will be judged. It says, uh, verse 12 in Revelation chapter 20, and it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Jumping down to verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
So those whose names were not written in the book of life before the foundation of the world uh, are thrown into the lake of fire. We see also some references in the Old Testament which are most likely to the book of life, even though it may not specifically name it as the book of life. And I believe in one of these cases, it is in Daniel chapter 12. And I'll read here verses 1 through 3. And it says, And at that time shall rise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, and such as there is, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, every one whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So we see that those who are delivered are those whose names are written in the book. It just says the book. So this is probably in reference to the book of life. Jesus himself, in speaking to his disciples who um, were casting out spirits, uh, said to them in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, he says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, it doesn't specifically say the book of life here, but it's most likely in reference to the book of life. So we, uh, those who are written in the book of life are delivered. Uh, it is their reason to rejoice. Uh, it was recently uh, in our church, uh, we were talking to our pastor about a particular issue we were going through. And um, he said, uh, rejoice, your names are written in the book of life. And, uh, and so that is what Jesus here was um, responding to his disciples here, that uh, that... Our, our power over the spirits is not what we should be rejoicing in, but that our names are written in heaven. And most likely here he's speaking of the book of life. Now, the only specific reference to the book of life outside of possibly Psalm 69, 28, um, outside of the book of Revelation, is in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. And it's actually the only other place in the New Testament where the book of life is specifically mentioned uh, outside of the book of Revelation. And Paul here writing... Uh, to the Philippians says in chapter 4 verse 3 it says yes I ask you also true companion help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life so we see here that our reason to labor for the gospel is because our names are written in the book of life if our names are written in the book of life we have a reason to labor for the gospel um, we uh, can see in the Old Testament multiple references to being blotted out, not specifically the book of life, but um, just uh, being blotted out. And we're going to get to those, but actually before I jump to that, let's go to Psalm 69, verse 28. I've been talking about that text. Now, in Psalm 69, verse 28, it is... Uh, most likely referring to the book of life here. As I said, the NASB, the, uh, the NASB translates it as the book of life. Uh, whereas uh, 
some other translations like the KJV and the ESV translated as the Book of the Living. Um, and so this is an imprecatory psalm of David asking God to bring judgment upon those that are seeking his death. And it says in Psalm 69, verse 28 in the ESV, it says, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. In Psalm 69, 28, it says, uh, in the KJV, it says, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. So we see written and enrolled among the righteous. So I think that this is most likely referring to the book of life. Uh, because of the second part of the verse, because the righteous are written in this particular book. So if this is simply those who are living, um, those who are alive, and to be blotted out here is to no longer be alive in the land of the living, then the second part doesn't really make sense. Uh, because it says, let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Well, there are many wicked people that um, are in the land of the living, and uh, they're enrolled in the land of the living right now, uh, along with the righteous. And so there seems to be a contrast here, let them not be enrolled among the righteous or written with the righteous. So I think that Psalm 6928 is probably referring to the Lamb's Book of Life. But we see here, to be blotted out of the Book of Life would then be to not have been written or enrolled at all. Um, and that would go back to Revelation, which tells us that we are enrolled and written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. So then to be blotted out is to not have been enrolled or written with the righteous before the foundation of the world. And so, <clears throat> so you can use kind of like Psalm 69 verse 28 here to kind of understand what being blotted out would mean in this case. And it would be to not be enrolled uh, or written in the book at all. Now, we do see that often in the Old Testament that the term to blot out um, is in reference to God utterly destroying, killing, uh, blotting out the memory of um, particular peoples or people. And we see in Genesis 6 verse 7, for example, uh, God says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land in Genesis 7 verse 4. It says, every living thing that I've made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. In Deuteronomy 9, verse uh, 14, it says that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And um, in 2 Kings fourteen twenty-seven, the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So we see here in those two cases that it's an utter destruction. It's being completely wiped out uh, to be completely blotted out from the land of the living. And um, in Exodus uh, 17, uh, verse 14, it's in reference to blotting out the memory of. Uh, it says that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. In uh, Deuteronomy 25, 19, it says, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. 
So it's in reference to an utter destruction to wipe out the memory of a particular people. Um, so that's how we see that the term blotted out used often in the Old Testament. We then see in Exodus 32 verses 32 and 33 probably the only reference that is uh, one that we actually more or less have to deal with uh, a little bit more from the perspective that we are secure um, in Christ and that uh, that we will never be uh, blotted out of the book of life. And this is in Exodus chapter 32 verses 32 to 33, and I'll read it from the ESV here. It says, but now if you, and just to give you context for this chapter here before I jump into it, this is uh, when the children of Israel had sinned by creating the golden calf and worshiping it. Uh, Moses here is pleading before God and interceding for the children of Israel at this point in time. So it says here, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot out, blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now, this text could possibly be referring to the book of life. Or it could simply be referring to uh, God's book for those who are just simply living. Those who are, are living right now on this earth. And so it could simply be, uh, please blot me out. Uh, Destroy me, kill me before you do um, these children of Israel. And that God is simply saying, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Uh, could be a corresponding text, for example, in Ezekiel 18, verse 20, it says, the soul who sins shall die. So it could be saying the same thing. And different commentators say different things. Calvin seems to say that uh, this text is in reference to the book of life and it's about um uh you know those who believe that they're hypocrites who believe they're in the book of life uh god is saying that uh, they will be blotted out uh, they um will be removed which um would once again imply that they were there before but we can see that to be blotted out in psalm 69 verse 28 is to never have been enrolled or written in the book of life at all so I don't necessarily uh, like that particular view. I think it this text might simply be referring to, as in many of the other places in Scripture, to be blotted out, um, uh, and in, especially even in uh, the writings of Moses himself in the first five books, in Deuteronomy and in Exodus and in Genesis, we read multiple texts where, where uh, God blotted out people. And to be blotted out in those cases was to die or to uh, destroy them. So in this particular text, it most likely uh, to me has the same meaning, to simply be removed from the land of the living. And uh, so that that's where that Matthew Henry uh, uh, insinuates uh, and implies that particular uh, view of this. He doesn't say much about this text. But he does give that particular implication. Uh, so that's that's the way that I look at this text, uh, that it's not necessarily referring to um, the book of life here, but simply referring to being blotted out of the land of the living 
in the same way that all the other instances in the Pentateuch in the first five books are um, referring to being blotted out of the land of the living. So now you, we could also look at it in this way is whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Well, this is why we who have been written in the Lamb's book of life, Christ is our righteousness. He has clothed us in his righteousness. He has imputed his righteousness to our behalf. So we are no longer in God's eyes uh, as one who has sinned against him. So therefore he will not blot us out of his book. So if, if this is in reference to the book of life, which I don't believe it necessarily is, um, those who are written in it are never blotted out because they have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ and um, their sin against uh, God has been canceled. The record of debt, uh, Colossians 2.14, uh, has been nailed to the cross and it has been canceled. So uh, those of us who have been written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, we will not be blotted out because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, another text that uh, the person who messaged me could be referring to is Revelation twenty-two nineteen. This was the text I brought up earlier. And this really comes from, <laughs> it's an artifact left over from the Texas Receptus. Uh, and Desiterius Erasmus, who who uh, is the author of the first three editions of the TR, and he was the one who created the first published printed Greek text. Uh, and I say published because there was a printed Greek text prior to him, but he was the first one to actually get it published. And um, so the the TR uh, stands uh, it's it's Latin Texas Receptus, an acronym for that. Uh, which means received text was the was the first published printed copy of the Greek New Testament and is the text behind the King James version of the Bible and just some history with what happened here in Revelation chapter 22 is that the last 6 verses of Revelation chapter 22 when Erasmus was compiling his um edition of the Greek text of the New Testament, he was unable to find a Greek manuscript for um, the last uh, six verses of Revelation chapter 22. Uh, he didn't have a copy of a, of a written manuscript of, of this, uh, the last part of Revelation 22. So what he ended up doing is in order to complete his Greek text is he back translated from his copy of the Latin Vulgate, which uh, comes from uh, Jerome, who translated it in the, uh, I believe it was the fourth century, uh, translated uh, the scriptures, both the Hebrew and Greek scriptures, into Latin. And uh, this became the Latin Vulgate. And he back translated from the Latin Vulgate. Uh, into Greek for these last six verses, which is why there is so many unusual readings uh, in the TR in the last part of chapter 22 of Revelation uh, because of this. Uh, 
some of this stuff in the later editorial work did not get removed. And so that is why um, the Greek text of the TR does say book of life in this verse instead of tree of life. So let's just actually read the verse here in uh, Revelation twenty-two nineteen. It says, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. That's in the ESV. In the King James Version, it says, and if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from things are written in this book. So, if the KJV was a correct translation, this would be somewhat problematic, right? Because it says that it would seem to say here that he has a part in the book of life and his part will be taken out of the book of life. Well, this is the there's actually no Byzantine majority text that has um, that has the book of life in it and none of the early manuscripts. Um, um, have have uh, book of life or have tree of or have book of life in it either. They they all say tree of life. So tree of life is very uh, most assur- most assuredly what John actually wrote, and um, book of life is incorrect. Um, all the critical text editions of the New Testament, both the UBS 4th edition, the Nestle Allen editions, 27th and 28th, do not have um, this as book of life. They all have this as tree of life, and some of them don't even reference this as a textual variant because it really isn't even a textual variant because there's not really any manuscripts that even contain book of life other than uh, the TR, which is a printed text, not a handwritten text. Um, and it is only there because of the back translation, which was done by Erasmus. So the, the real text would say, take away his share from the tree of life. So you may ask, well, did he have any share in the tree of life? Well, if we look at the tree of life, the tree of life existed in the garden of Eden, correct? And Adam and Eve, due to their sin, were cut off from the tree of life. And due to being cut off from the tree of life, um, they died. They physically died. And and so to be cut off from your share in the tree of life is to die. And in this case, it would be the second death. And so anyone who takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, any anyone who adds to the word of God, anyone who takes away from the word of God, and groups that do this are often like the cults, like the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, will will add to and take away from God's word. And specifically here, John is referring to his book, this book of prophecy. It says God will cut him off from the tree of life, will take away his share from the tree of life in the same way that Adam and Eve were cut off from the tree of life due to their sin. And so I don't believe that this text gives any sort of difficulty at all uh, for the book of life. So I think scripture is uh, pretty clear. Um, Our names are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Um, If we are the saints of God, uh, our names will not be blotted out of that book. God promises us. And uh, it is our name being in the book of life, which is why we are 
permitted entrance into the eternal state with God to be with him forever. And uh, those who are not in the book of life are judged. Uh, Those who are in the book of life are delivered. It is our reason to rejoice. It is our reason to labor for the gospel. And uh, so I don't really see any reason uh, at all for the uh, references in the Bible about the book of life and even the the terms of being blotted out to have any sort of difficulty at all for the biblical doctrine of perseverance of the saints. So uh, hopefully that was helpful uh, to you uh, uh, for uh, you who wrote in and asked that question. Hopefully I was able to answer that for you in a thorough manner. And so uh, we'll uh, actually jump into the topic here that uh, we were planning on covering in the show. Alrighty, so what we're going to do here is I'm going to go to a presentation that I put together on this, and we're going to talk about young earth creationism. And uh, I want to get into uh, the scientific um, reasons also uh, that affirm what I believe the Bible teaches. But as a Christian, I, I must and always start with the Bible because the Bible is my foundation. So our first episode here that we're going to have on... Um, the, I believe the biblical teaching of young earth creationism is uh, going to start with the biblical text. And we're not even going to get into really science today at all. Uh, but we will uh, either start that next weekend uh, or in some following show. Uh, there's a couple other things that we have planned. So we'll see how that works out. But I do want to do uh, several shows. It's going to take me actually several to get through all the, the scientific stuff I, I want to get uh, into and uh, at the end of this uh, particular presentation, um, uh, I, I'm going to list some of the stuff I, I'm going to cover when I go into uh, the science that confirms the truth of uh, God's word. And I believe all science, in fact, confirms the truth of God's word. Uh, and if you take out all naturalistic assumptions uh, from scientific analysis, uh, you end up with really only affirming young earth creationism. But uh, before we get into that, let's uh, let's do what we as Christians should always do, and that is go to Scripture and what does Scripture say about God's creation of the world, how he did it, um, and uh, what those things that God has actually revealed to us about um, his creation. So the first thing that we want to do is if we're going to talk about young earth creationism, is we have to go to Genesis chapter 1. And we have to start there with what does God actually say in his word about his creative act. And so in Genesis chapter 1, um, uh, God goes through the six days of creation and he tells us what he did. And, and every single uh, day here, in Genesis chapter 1 is noted as the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, and the sixth day. Each one uh, uses ordinal numbers. Ordinal numbers are like first, second, third, fourth. 
uh, with the term day, which is the Hebrew word yom. Now, the Hebrew word yom uh, can be used in exactly the same way the English word day can be used. For example, I could say, um, I can use the word day in English in reference to a actual 24-hour day. Um, the day that I traveled to uh, Virginia was a long and tiresome day. Okay, that would be in reference. Anybody who hears me use the word day in that particular context would know that I'm referring to a 24-hour normal day. Now, if I use the English word day and I said, well, back in my father's day, uh, or my, well, let's say back in my grandfather's day, they used to send messages via telegram. Now, am I referring to an ordinary 24-hour day in that case? Well, no. I would be referring to an age or a period of time. But we can always easily tell from the context of what the day, the term yom or the term day in English actually means. And I don't think there's any ambiguity here in Genesis chapter 1 at all with this. I think the, I think the text is really, really actually quite clear. The other thing is, is that every time in the Bible that it uses ordinal numbers with the term day, it is always in reference to 24-hour days. Just do a basic search through your Old Testament or your entire Bible for like the term first day, second day, third day. Just search for those terms and you'll find every place that you find that, except for Genesis chapter 1, there is no contention at all that it means a 24-hour day. There's no contention. Nobody argues about that. But only once our society comes to a point where uh, philosophical naturalism is the philosophy that guides science, uh, is, the, is the guiding scientific philosophy of the day, and uh, in order to be accepted by secular, uh, the secular world, who assumes philosophical naturalism um, within their scientific inquiry and to be accepted by that, well, then I can't accept, you know, uh, what the Bible clearly teaches. Well, we're, our foundation is supposed to be the, the Bible and God's word. And so I don't understand why any Christian would ever even want to um, accept the conclusions that are the result of naturalistic argumentation. So... I think it's very clear. So up until modern times of when um, of when scientific naturalism became the norm, this was never even really a discussion. Um, everyone believed, uh, most Christians believed that uh, that uh, the days of creation were normal 24-hour days. Now, some people will try to bring up Augustine, and they'll say that, uh, you know, Augustine believed that God created instantly ex nihilo. Um, I, I would actually like to see the, the reference to that, because in my reading of Augustine, and I've, I've read uh, some of Augustine, and he talks about creation quite a bit in his confessions, and I don't see that he's clearly saying that. I think that he was talking about, in a lot of cases, um, uh, that God created unformed matter ex nihilo instantly in one moment um, but 
I didn't see that he was advocating that God created all of formed and ordered creation uh, in one instant and did not do it over a period of six 24-hour days. I didn't really get that. So if, if any of you guys out there know where Augustine actually said that, denied that God created it over six ordinary days, um, and instead created it ex nihilo all in one moment, created everything, um, I'd like to actually see that reference because... When I read Augustine myself, I I don't see that, and he loves talking about creation in his confessions, and I, I don't see that in in his confessions. So if anybody has that reference, go ahead and show that to me. But from the normal understanding of church throughout all of church history, it has been that Genesis has been normal 24-hour days until modern times, and when that has been challenged. So all the days are also said to have evening and morning. So every day is bracketed by evening and morning on the six days of creation. Now, we don't get this on the seventh day, but I believe this is because God um, uh, it is, is talking about uh, God's rest on the seventh day continues. In fact, that he's not, he's not engaging in creating new matter. Now, he is upholding the universe by the word of his power, and so he's working in that way. And, Gen- and Jesus affirms this, and I believe in John chapter 8, where he says, My Father is working, and I am working also. Um, it's in reference to them upholding the universe by the word of their power and, and keeping the, the universe, uh, going forward in a uniform way, upholding the laws of nature and, uh, so forth. But, um, God rested from his creative acts on day seven and he continues resting on his create from his creative acts. He's not creating new matter continually. So all the days are said to have an evening and a morning. Uh, the order of creation also of the plants and sun are not consistent with a day age theory. So if you're going to hold to that these days in Genesis chapter 1 are simply uh, long ages or long periods of time, then on the third day, when you have uh, the plants created, if that's a long period of time, uh, then you're going to have plants existing for millions of years before the sun is created on day four. Now, if you go with with 24 ordinary normal days, you don't have an issue because plants can survive for several, you know, for for hours within darkness, and that's not an issue. Now, uh, did the plants have light possibly? Well, you know, we see that uh, God said, let there be light on the first day. And... Um, So it's possible that God himself was the source of light on day three for the plants. I I don't know. Uh, They could have been in darkness, at least on one part of the earth. They were probably in darkness if God himself was the source of light. And uh, maybe he enlightened the whole earth, or maybe he just, he did one part of it, making um, evening and morning. Most likely he did. He probably illuminated the the earth in much the same way that the sun does, so that there was an actual evening and morning, because the first day does say that there was evening and morning. So, um, <clears throat> we uh, would say that the order of creation here is not consistent with the day age theory with days three and four. I believe it's also significant that God created the sun on day four. Um, I believe there's a probably a significant reason why God did that. Uh, most uh, ancient cultures um, often worshipped the sun, 
and for the sun to have been created on day four uh, notes that it is not, you know, it was not the first of God's creation. Uh, God is is putting it later and himself even providing the light, most likely to demonstrate that that uh, the sun is not this great God, you know, this great deity that uh, ought to be worshipped. It's uh, less than him. He can provide light without the sun. Um, in day six um, of Genesis chapter one is further described and expounded upon in chapter two. The events described are those that would happen in a single day and not over a long period of time. So in chapter two, for example, um, it goes into further exposition of what had happened on day six, which was described in uh, Genesis chapter 1 for example it says in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 it says uh, let us make man in our image after our likeness and then in verse 27 it says so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them so we see here that it says in Genesis chapter 1 in reference to day 6 that he created both male and female of man um, on day six, and then he ends uh, day six uh, down in verse 31. And it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And so then in chapter two, it goes into detail about God creating man and then creating Eve from Adam's rib and from his side. And so it's it's obviously a further exposition and going into more detail of what had happened on day six. And the events described in Genesis chapter two are describing something that could have easily happened within a single day. We have Adam being created. We have him naming the animals. We have Eve being created. And um, and that could all have very easily happened in one day we also see God's commandment to them about what they um, uh, should and should not do when it came to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life there in day six so how day six is described in Genesis chapter two would not imply a long age or a long period of time um, Adam didn't exist for a million years and then God created and he named the animals during that million years and then uh, <laughs> and then God created Eve later on in the age from his side and so forth uh, the the actions described very easily could fit in, in within an ordinary daylight hours of an ordinary day so the question is is also what did Jesus believe Jesus himself said in Matthew 19, verse 4, he said, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So Jesus is obviously quoting from Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 27, that he created them male and female. And he says, in the beginning. So if day-age theory is correct, and it is simply describing God's creative act over millions of years, then by the time you get to day six, you're no longer in the beginning of creation. Now, some people will say, well, day six is not the beginning. Well, it's a lot closer than 4.5 billion years. 
So I don't think that that really has any issue. Um, all six days were the beginning of God's creative act because God did not actually finish creating until the end of day six. So that would still be within the beginning because God performed his creative act over six days and then he completed it uh, at the end of day six. And so he would have created male and female within that beginning period of time in which he performed his creative acts. In John 5, verse 46, it says, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, speaking to the Jews here, and he is condemning them for their unbelief in him. The interesting thing is, is that for modern um, Christianity that that does not hold to uh, what I think Moses very clearly wrote, I think is saying exactly the opposite here. They're saying, yes, I can believe in Jesus, but I don't have to necessarily believe Moses. And I don't think that you can necessarily uh, truly believe Jesus without believing Moses, because Moses was inspired through the work of the Logos and through the Holy Spirit. And uh, his words are just as true as the words of Jesus. The other thing that I want to point out is that in the fourth commandment, written by God in stone, this is what God said. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So <clears throat> it's pretty clear here. God actually etched in stone here that he made heaven and earth in six days. And he attributes this to why he wants them to labor for six days in the same way that he did um, in creative acts that they would also labor for six days and then rest on a seventh. So if God created uh, the universe and the earth over six long ages, then are we supposed to work for millions of years and then rest for a million, for millions of years? It just doesn't make any sense. Um, I think that God has spoken clearly to his people in all time. And when the Jews read what God had etched in stone for them, they actually believed that God had created the universe in six days. And we are not so much smarter than them today. We are not so much more enlightened than the Jews of the time of Moses that we just know better now. No, God has spoken to his people clearly throughout all time. And they, we've always been able to understand God through the working of the Holy Spirit uh, to take his word at his word. And God very clearly says that he created in six days. The other point is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, the very end of the first chapter of Genesis, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So God said that everything was good. So the question would be is if death, disease, and destruction preceded the fall, 
how could God call that very good? So if we're going to accept the geological um, eras and ages that the uh, that uh, naturalistic science uh, tells us is the truth, then that means that those fossils that we see throughout all those layers that represent millions and billions of years of time um, are uh, show there we can see cancer in the fossil layer. Uh, obviously, they're fossils, so they died. So there you have death. Um, you see destructive acts. For example, there is like these massive dinosaur grave uh, yards in like Colorado and in places like that where massive amounts of dinosaurs were piled up in an obviously very destructive act that they were all piled on top of each other and mixed in together. Um, so obviously some some sort of uh, uh, major disaster happened there. So we have death, disease, destruction, disaster, all preceding the fall. Because it's very clear that Adam uh, existed around 6,000 years ago uh, from Scripture. And many people that even hold to theistic evolution or uh, day-age theory, uh, things like that, will affirm and acknowledge that Adam is much more recent. So if these eras of time existed before Adam, that means death, disease, and destruction existed before Adam. And that means that those are not the result of Adam's sin, but instead are the result of God's creative act. And that means that God called death, disease, and destruction very good. My question is, for any of you that hold to that, is if God called the first creation with death, disease, and destruction very good, what hope is there that the new heaven and earth will not also contain death, disease, and destruction? What sort of hope do we have for the eternal state if God would actually call uh, such things good? It's a question that you have to ask yourself. We also see in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve's sin, we see God's curse. And we see that his curse um, had two implications here. Uh, because many people that hold a day-age or theistic evolution will say that the curse was only death to Adam. But let's actually look at it here. And it says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we see both the creation, the ground, cursed, and we see uh, death brought to Adam. To dust you shall return. So we have both death and the curse of creation um, uh, because of Adam's sin, as a result of Adam's sin. Uh, God's curse uh, because of Adam's sin was on all of creation. It subjected all of creation to degeneration and death. We can see this in Romans 8, verses 19 through 22. We can see the curse that God has placed uh, upon creation, where it says in Genesis chapter 3, where he cursed the ground. 
in Romans 8:19 for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now so ever since the fall God who has subjected the creation to the bondage of corruption uh, and futility uh, because of uh, Adam's sin is also now eagerly awaiting it's the entire creation is groaning uh, and is also waiting to be redeemed and God promises that he will create a new heaven and a new earth and so the futility and the corruption the death disease and destruction will go away in this new creation and it will go back to that first state that first state where everything was as God called it good uh, we also see very clearly that death came by sin in Romans five twelve, it says therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin so death spread to all men because all have sinned in 1st Corinthians fifteen twenty one, it says for as by a man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead for as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive so we see here that by a man came death so if we say that death preceded Adam then we cannot say that by a man came death but instead by God's creative act came death because death was simply a part of God's creation we cannot affirm that death came by um, the act of a particular man so the next thing we have to look at is the flood itself and so most often when people deny uh, the six days of creation as being literal six 24-hour days they will also deny the flood in uh, at, at, well they won't maybe deny that it was an event that happened but they will restrict it to a local flood or they'll do what um, I'm actually trying to remember his name right now um, some some of the some of them will say that it was a universal flood, not a global flood. And universal meaning um, the the area that man uh, resided in, the the universe of Noah, <laughs> uh, where Noah lived, and so forth. But let's actually look what the text actually says in Genesis chapter six, verse thirteen. And this is where God is promising um, that. Uh, uh, he will bring uh, destruction upon uh, the earth. It says, and God said to Noah, I, will de I have determined to make an end of all flesh, of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So he's going to destroy them with the earth itself. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, and its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits actually that's kind of significant there it's height 30 cubits we'll talk about that in a little bit make a roof for the ark and f finish it to a cubit above set the door of the ark in it in its side make it with a lower second and third decks for behold I will bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven 
everything that is on the earth shall die. So God is not promising destruction to just a particular area. He's promising destruction to everything that is on the earth shall die. Everything which has the breath of life under heaven shall die. So it's a promise of a global flood. The other thing that we have to look at here in Genesis chapter 7, verse 18, when the flood actually occurred, it's recorded, um, the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarmed on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out, here's that blotted out we were talking about earlier, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, men, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heaven, they were blotted out from the earth, only Noah was left, and those who were with him on the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth a hundred and fifty days. So note here that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered, and they were covered 15 cubits deep. Notice that the ark was uh, was created 30 cubits high, right? Uh, most ships, when loaded, will draft about halfway, which means that God covered the mountains uh, 15 cubits more, uh, or 15 cubits, so that the ark would draft over the mountains and would not would not ground. Um, and so we see that all the mountains, even the highest mountains, were covered up to 15 cubits of water over them. And the waters prevailed over the whole earth. So it's pretty clear. The arguments that most people would say is that it was just, you know, like I said, universal not global. Let's address this. Okay, so if it was only a local flood, why did God not have Noah and his family simply move out of the flood area? Why did he have to even create an ark? Uh, God warned them about 120 years prior to the flood. They would have had 120 years to accomplish the move. They would have had 120 years to migrate him and his family outside of the floodplain. Why did Noah take all air-breathing animals in the ark if it was only a local flood? In Genesis 17, 7, verse 14, they and every beast according to its kind and all livestock according to their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah two and two of all flesh in which were in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded, and the Lord shut him in. So if it was simply a local flood, not a global flood, or as they say, universal, not global, um, why didn't, why did they even have to take the animals into the ark? Wouldn't the animals in the other areas that were not flooded have survived? Could God not have also just had the animals simply migrate out of the uh, the area uh, in which the flood occurred? Um, there is, um, and those of you that are listening to the podcast and not watching this presentation, I have a picture here from Answers in Genesis uh, <laughs> of what a local flood would have had to look like 
Um, if, uh, if the text is true that the water was 15 cubits over the highest mountain and yet it was a local flood, uh, we would have had to have <laughs> uh, the, the, the water just standing up on its own um, in the local area. So uh, you can see that there. I think it's, it's really quite absurd to, uh, to hold to that. Um, the other thing is, is when we say young earth creationism, so we've been talking about the six days of creation and we've been talking about the global flood, but how do we get the age of the earth? Well, you know, I, I'm fine with, uh, accepting people as young earth creationists. If they say that, you know, the earth is 20,000 years or less, um, I, you know, I'm not going to argue necessarily about it. Um, I don't think that you can find gaps within the genealogies and the timelines to, to come up with that much time. Um, I don't think you can find a place to get that much time squeezed into it. But, uh, I mean, I, I hold to that it's a little over 6,000 years. And we get that from um, uh, by adding the dates uh, in Genesis chapter 5 and 11, we can add up the ages of the um, uh, the pre-Diluvian um, uh, people and also those who uh, lived after the flood in verse 11. If we add them up to Abraham, we get roughly about 2,000 years. And uh, we get about, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I didn't put this down, but it's about 1,700 years to the flood from creation and then about 2,000 years from uh than from Adam to Abraham. And uh, most scholars, both Christian and secular, would agree that Abraham lived about uh, 2000 B.C., which we're in uh, 2080 now, which would give us roughly about 4,000 years ago to um, Abraham, which is where we get uh, roughly 6,000 years. Uh, 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham and then 4,000 years from Abraham to us gives about 6,000 years. So, I mean, that's that's what I hold to. I hold to it's roughly there. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm not going to. If somebody wants to hold that uh, the Earth is about twenty thousand years old, uh, I, th- I think there's some good people that hold to that. I, I just I don't agree with it. But uh, you're still a young Earth creationist at that point. So um, that is, I think, all we're going to cover today. Um, I do want to talk about the scientific arguments. Uh, I want to cover. Uh, at least some of them. I didn't put everything here that I want to cover, uh, but we're, we're going to talk about the the lunar recession. Um, the the moon is slowly moving a little bit further away from the Earth uh, due to uh, uh, tidal gravitational forces, and uh, we have also want to talk about uh, carbon fourteen. I want to talk about both in coal and diamonds, but we also want to talk about C fourteen equilibrium in the atmosphere, which is a very interesting. Uh, topic. Uh, we want to talk about the magnetic fields of the planets and also the magnetic field of the Earth. I want to talk about comets. Um, <clears throat> I also want to talk about soft tissue and dinosaur dinosaurs. Um, I want to also uh, talk about some of the issues with the Big Bang Theory. Uh, there's some major issues with the Big Bang Theory uh, when it comes to the fusion of elements uh, within stars to create any of the elements above iron. You also have um, the horizon problem. There's so many issues that we can go through, 
but I'm going to go into some of them uh, that exist with the Big Bang, which some day-age creationists and uh, especially theistic evolutionists would would try to hold to some form of the Big Bang. Um, and I don't think that that's really scientifically tenable or biblically tenable either. Um, and then we want to get into uh, really delving into a little bit more into the naturalistic assumptions that are uh, within all the evolutionary uh, large time frame arguments and how all the long periods of time arguments really do collapse when you start removing the naturalistic assumptions out of the particular arguments. Um, and so we might also talk about uh, the zircon crystals and helium diffusion from zircon crystals. We can maybe talk about that also. Uh, I do want to also discuss uh, there really is um, an issue with uh, this, with uh, the speed of light and uh, how far we can see into the universe um, in astronomy. Uh, I believe that those distances are actually valid, <laughs> uh, but there are several ways that we as Christians can uh, can look at that and, and to resolve that as an issue, uh, because that is an issue that I think that we need to to deal with. Now, what um, most people don't realize is that the starlight and the speed of light issue also exists with the Big Bang Theory, and that is the horizon problem and also the issue with the cosmic uh, microwave uh, background radiation, which is much too uniform and diffused <clears throat> due to the speed of light. Um, the universe could not have uh, diffused its energy and the, the microwave background radiation <clears throat> um, as uniformly as it has <clears throat> based upon Big Bang models due to the limitation of the speed of light. So we'll talk about that, um, but I, I believe that there are some good solutions out there for the issue from the creation uh, model uh, with the uh, the speed of light. And um, there's uh, one that I like called the, the white hole cosmology uh, uh, put forth by Dr. Russell Humphreys. And we'll talk about uh, him also when we discuss magnetic fields. But uh, he has a, a book, uh, I believe it's entitled Starlight in Time, uh, which I've read quite a few years ago. Uh, but we'll get into some of that. <coughs> And also, Jason Lyell uh, talks about the anisotropic synchrony convention, which is talking about the one-way speed of light. Uh, we'll talk about that also as um, uh, a potential solution to some of these issues. So um, hopefully uh, that was helpful to you. And uh, as always, we as Christians, we look at what does Scripture say first when we come to these particular uh, discussions. And that should be paramount um, because we're Christians, right? So that's what we look at. And so also when it comes to the scientific type arguments and the scientific type discussions, um, these are not uh, how I try to go to the unbeliever and prove to him that the Bible is true. The Bible is true because God has spoken and the Bible is true because of the impossibility to the contrary. Um, you could not even talk about science if the Bible was not true. We could not even discuss the scientific method and methodology of investigation into God's world if we would not be trusting in principles and in uh, absolutes uh, revealed to us by God and that are only justified from the biblical Christian worldview. So uh, everyone knows that God exists and uh, even those who do not believe and so I'm not going to try to use a scientific argument to prove it to them um, other than if we use them 
we use them to show that they are without excuse because it is so clear that they do know that God exists. So thank you uh, for joining us today. And uh, hopefully we will, uh, uh, Lord willing, uh, Deo Valente, we will be with you uh, next week. And we will continue either on this discussion or uh, we might have another podcast coming up uh, on, a, on a different topic. But uh, we'll, we'll get this done. Also, uh, want to get back to talking about Christological heresies. Uh, we need to do an episode on that also. So that'll be coming down the uh, down the pipeline, Lord willing. So uh, see you guys next week. And that is the wrong music. Let me grab our outtake music. And uh, there we go. So see you guys next week, and God bless.